I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second of this year's London Review of Books lectures at the British Museum. Uh, We're particularly pleased that this lecture is happening on today, and (laughs) with all the least we could do, we'll start with a proper welcome to you all, and with a suitably chaste valentine by G.F. Watts, uh, sent uh, to the Honourable Lady Taylor, he tells us on the back. But as we thought of this as our Valentine to everybody, we thought that really it's fairly tame, given that over the last year we've had a couple of exhibitions with some very, very powerful expressions of love in unexpected forms. Um, uh, uh, First of all, of course, the uh, pan with the goat, uh, about which uh, this evening's lecturer uh, spoke uh, eloquently uh, and fulsomely um, in the Pompeii Live exhibition. And then in the Japanese exhibition, um, the subject that was entitled Lady with an Octopus. I'm not sure this is actually a lady, um, but uh, that's maybe a linguistic uh, distinction that doesn't apply in the original Japanese. Um, So we felt actually we needed some kind of stronger message of our affection for you and for our lecturer and for the LRB. So turning to Florence, where of course one turns for these things... uh, Botticelli obligingly painted a valentine. Uh, as you may know, this beautiful uh, little uh, Judith and Holofernes, uh, Judith who cuts off Holofernes' head, um, thus uh, taking his reason captive, um, and then blithely carries it happily home. And it is thought that uh, it was actually sent by the man whose portrait is the head of Holofernes as a tribute to the Judith who had captured him. But that seemed a little bloodthirsty for our relationship with the London Review of Books. Because the London Review of Books has, over the last few years with these lecture series, played a very, very important part in the intellectual life of the British Museum. It has played a critical part, I think, in enabling us to widen the debate about the objects in the museum, in exhibitions, about the themes that the museum addresses. And I would like to take this opportunity of thanking Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor of the London Review of Books, very warmly indeed for making all that possible and this evening. 
So we thought we needed this as really our Valentine to Mary Kay Wilmers. It is, of course, Pallas Athena with the centaur. Uh, the centaur, the kind of uh, debased humanity whose life is <laughs> transformed by the encounter with the lady who is now going to introduce this evening's lecturer. Thank you very much, Neil. Um, I wish I could repay the compliment suitable style, but um, we're very grateful to you for everything you do with us and for us. It goes without saying that Mary Beards is the public voice of women. Take this lecture. The BBC is going to broadcast it, as you see. The Times interviewed her about it. She was wearing Jimmy Shoe trainers for the occasion. She spoke about it at lunchtime today on The World at One. The Higher Educational Supplement wanted to interview her. The Guardian wanted to reprint the text, and when that proved impossible, they cornered her some other way. She is a professor of classics at Cambridge, a fellow of Newnham College, the author of 13 books and two books of blog posts, classics editor of the TLS, and a familiar presence on the telly. She's invited to lecture everywhere, from cruise ships on the Adriatic to New York Public Library, not a great distance, and fought over by literary papers on two continents. In the LRB, she has written about all the ancient greats, Caligula, Nero, Cleopatra, about Tacitus and Cicero, Roman schools and Roman shopping, about admirable women like Dorothy Hodgkin and less admirable women like Margaret Thatcher, it was in the LRB that she first wrote about Pompeii, the, the subject that launched her career as a media star. She didn't say in September 2001 that America had it coming. She said people will say America had it coming. And though it was feared that she wouldn't be allowed into the U.S. again, I bumped into her a few weeks later on her way to, to give a lecture in Columbus, Ohio. She is doughtier than most women, more adventurous, more resilient in the face of idiocy, more likely to speak up, a model to all of us, especially when she's wearing those gold-plated Jimmy Shoes sneakers. Thank you very much, Mary Kay. I put the Jimmy Choo's on just for you. Uh, and thank you very much, Neil. Um, I don't know that you realised, Neil, that uh, decapitation was going to be quite a theme of my lecture. So I can warn you, there is some more severed heads coming up. Right? Not quite yet. Because I want to start tonight... Um, very near the beginning of the whole tradition of Western literature and with its first recorded example, and there must be many unrecorded, the first recorded example of a man telling a woman to shut up, <laughs> that her voice is not to be heard in public. I'm thinking of a particular moment, immortalised at the start of Homer's Odyssey, one of the founding epics of the Western literary tradition, 
almost 3,000 years old. Now, now we tend to think of the Odyssey as the story of the Greek hero Odysseus and the adventures and scrapes he had returning home after the Trojan War, while for decades his wife Penelope, here sitting by her loom, loyally waited for him, fending off the suitors, pressing to marry her. But the Odyssey is just as much a story of Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, and Penelope seen here facing him, her. It's the story of his growing up, how over the course of this long poem, he matures from boy to man, and is a process that starts in the very first book like this. One day in the family palace, Penelope comes down from her private quarters into the great hall to find a bard performing to throngs of her suitors. And he's singing about the awful difficulties the Greek heroes are having in their attempts to get back home after the war. Penelope is not amused, and in front of everybody, she asks him to choose another happier number. At which point, young Telemachus intervenes. Mother, he says, go back up to your quarters and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, all men, and me most of all, for mine is the power in this household. And off she goes back upstairs. Now, there is, I have to say, something faintly ridiculous, I always think, about this sort of wet-behind-the-ears teenager actually managing to shut up the savvy middle-aged Penelope. But he does that, and it's a nice demonstration that right at the very beginning where the Western literary tradition starts, women's voices are not being heard in the public sphere. And more than that, as Homer has it, an integral part of growing up to be a man is learning to take control of public utterance and to silence the female of the species. Actually, the very words Telemachus uses are significant too. When he says speech is men's business, the word he uses for speech is muthos. Now, that's not actually in the sense that it's come down to us as myth. In Homeric Greek, it signals authoritative public speech, not the kind of chatting and prattling and gossip that anyone, women included or especially women, could do. The line is, mum can chat, but woe betide her if she tries to command muthos, the voice of authority. What I want to do this evening is to reflect on the relationship between that classic Homeric moment of silencing a woman and some of the ways in which women's voices are not publicly heard in our own contemporary culture and in our own politics 
from the front bench to the shop floor. It's a well-known deafness, um, which is nicely captured uh, in this punch cartoon uh, drawn, needless to say, by a woman. Uh, You've seen this many times in many areas. Uh, There's five blokes around the table, uh, one nice lady called Miss Triggs, and the chair is saying, in case you can't quite read it, that's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. We'll be coming back to this cartoon later. Um, But I also want to look briefly at how, again, this Homeric moment might also relate to the abuse that many women who do speak out get subjected to even now. Now, I want to underline that I'm trying to concentrate much more on voice tonight than on writing or on physical appearance. And one of the questions at the back of my mind is, to put it very simply, is what's the connection between, say, publicly speaking out in support of a female logo on a banknote, Twitter threats of rape and decapitation, thank you, Neil, uh, and Telemachus's put-down, of Penelope. Now, I have to be the first to acknowledge that it might seem a bit paradoxical, uh, maybe even slightly self-defeating, for me here to be speaking publicly in front of this great audience about the obstacles confronting women in finding a public voice or a public ear. Uh, There will be some people who are saying, you know, she's got a bit of a nerve to try that. Um, I'm going to come back again to that question too. But let me say now, this is not intended to be an hours-long complaint. Um, Nor am I wanting to suggest any blanket rules about women's silence, if that is how we should see it. I want to say it's much more complicated than that. My aim, rather, is to try to take a long view, actually a very long view, on what I see as the culturally awkward relationship between the voice of women and the public sphere of speech-making, debate and comment, politics in its widest sense, whether it's in the office or the floor of the House of Commons. I'm hoping that a long view will help us get beyond the simple diagnosis of misogyny that I think we tend to fall back on a bit lazily, to be honest. To be sure, misogyny is one of the things that's going on here. Just speaking personally, if you go on a television discussion programme and then you receive a load of tweets um, comparing your genitalia to a variety of rotting vegetables, it's hard not to think misogyny is an apt term for what's going on. But if we want to, I think, understand better and even more do something about the fact that women, even when they're not actually silenced, yet still tend to pay a very high price in our culture to have their voices heard, we have, I think, to recognise that it's all a bit more complicated than that and that there is a long backstory. And I'm starting with the backstory. Because you won't be surprised to learn 
that Telemachus's outburst is just the first in a long line of largely successful attempts stretching throughout Greco-Roman antiquity, not just to exclude women from public speech, but also to boast that they have been excluded. To give you just a very quick flavour, in the early 4th century BC, the Greek playwright Aristophanes devoted a whole comedy to the, quotes, hilarious fantasy that women might actually take over running the state. Part of the joke was that women just couldn't speak properly in public, or rather... They couldn't adapt their private speech, which in this case turns out to be all about sex. They couldn't adapt their private speech to the lofty idiom of male Athenian politics. In the Roman world, uh, Ovid's wonderful metamorphoses, that extraordinary mythological epic poem about people changing shape, probably the most influential work of literature on Western art after the Bible ever, the Metamorphoses repeatedly returns to the idea of the silencing of women in the process of their transformation. Here's a 17th century version of poor Io, who's been turned into a cow by Jupiter, so she cannot talk but only moo while the chatty nymph Echo is punished by being condemned only to be able to repeat the words of others. Uh, Waterhouse here in this famous picture has her gazing at Narcissus, but unable to initiate a conversation with him, while he, the original narcissist, has fallen in love with his own image in the pond. In the realm of history rather than myth, one earnest Roman anthologist of the first century AD managed to rake up just three examples of, quotes, women whose natural condition did not manage to keep them silent in the forum. His descriptions are quite revealing. The first, a woman called Mycia, successfully defended herself in the courts and, quote, because she really had a man's nature under the appearance of a woman, was called the androgyne, the man-woman. The second, Aphrania, used to initiate legal cases herself and was impudent enough to plead in person so that people became tired out with her barking or yapping. So yeah, in this account, um, she still doesn't have a human voice. She's turned into a dog already. We're told that she died in 48 BC because, and I'm quoting again, with unnatural freaks like this, it's more important to record when they died, not when they were born. Now, there are just two main exceptions in the classical world to this abomination of women's public speaking. First, women are allowed to speak out as victims and as martyrs, usually 
to announce their own forthcoming death. (laughs) Early Christian women, for example, are regularly represented, loudly upholding their faith as they go to be eaten by the lions. And in a famous story from early the early history of Rome, uh, the virtuous Lucretia, raped by a brutal prince of the ruling house, was given a speaking part solely to denounce the rapist and announce her own suicide. Also, Roman writers presented it. We haven't a clue what really happened. And here you have a 16th century image of the rape at the top and there Lucretia underneath uh, announcing what she's going to do. But even this rather bitter opportunity to speak could also itself be removed from women. One memorable story in Ovid's Metamorphoses, again, tells, I'm afraid, of yet another rape, this time of the young princess Philomela. In order to prevent any Lucretia-style denunciation here, the rapist, as you see, quite simply cuts her tongue out. It's a theme uh, that you probably know gets picked up again uh, uh, in Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, where the raped Lavinia there has her tongue removed. The second exception to, to women's silence is perhaps a more familiar one. Occasionally, woman, a woman could legitimately rise up to speak to defend her home, her kids, her husband, or the interests of other women. So in the third of the three examples of female oratory discussed by the Roman anthologist, the woman, Hortensia by name, gets away with it because she is acting explicitly as the spokesperson of the other women of Rome, the women only, after they had been subject to a special wealth tax to fund a rather dubious war effort. Women, in other words, may in extreme circumstances publicly defend their own sectional interests, but they can't speak for men. And they can't speak for the community as a whole. And here's a 15th century attempt to recapture uh, Hortensia in full flow. In general, as one ancient Roman guru rather aptly put it, a woman should as modestly guard against exposing her voice to outsiders as she would guard against stripping off her clothes. That's the limit of female silence. There is, I think, more to this than meets the eye. The muteness that I've been trying to evoke is not simply a reflection of a general disempowerment of women in the classical world. You know, no voting rights, limited legal and economic powers, and so on. Of course, it's partly that. Ancient women were obviously likely, uh, not likely to raise their voices in, in a political sphere in which they had no formal stake. But the point seems to me is that we're dealing with a much more active and loaded exclusion of women from public speech in the ancient world. And importantly, 
It's one with a much greater impact than we usually acknowledge on our own traditions, conventions and assumptions about the voice of women. What I mean is that public speaking and oratory wasn't something that ancient women just simply didn't do. It was an exclusive practice, an exclusive skill that positively defined masculinity as a gender. As we saw with Telemachus, to become a man, and of course we're talking an elite man, to become a man was to claim the right to speak. Public speech was a, if not the, defining attribute of maleness. So a woman speaking in public was in most circumstances, by definition, not a woman. So beyond the kind of examples that I've quoted to you, we find repeated stress throughout ancient literature on the authority of the deep male voice. As one ancient scientific treatise explicitly put it, a low-pitched voice indicated manly courage. A high-pitched voice indicated female cowardice. Or, as other classical writers insisted, the tone and the timbre of woman's speech always threatened to subvert not just the voice of the male orator, but the social and political stability and the health of the state as a whole. Another second-century uh, lecturer and guru, um, Dio Chrysostom, his name is a bit of a mouthful, but it actually means, significantly enough, Dio the Golden Mouth. Dio had this to say. I think it captures it nicely. Imagine this, he asked. Suppose an entire community was struck by the following strange affliction. All the men suddenly got female voices and no male, child or adult, could say anything in a manly way. Would not that seem terrible and harder to bear than any plague? <laughs> I'm sure they would send off to a sanctuary to consult the gods and try to propitiate the divine power with many gifts. It would be nice to think that Dio was joking, but he wasn't, I don't think. What I want to underline here, and it's really my second point, is that this is not just the peculiar ideology of some distant culture. Distance in time, it may be. But actually, this is the tradition of gendered speaking and the theorising of gendered speaking to which we are still directly, or more often indirectly, the heirs. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. You know, Western culture does not, know every, does not owe everything to the Greeks and Romans uh, in speech or in anything else. And to be honest, thank heavens, it doesn't. You know? um, even a classicist, or perhaps especially a classicist, would not fancy living in a Greco-Roman world. And there are all kinds of variants and competing influences on us. 
and our political system has happily overthrown many of the gendered certainties of antiquity, most obviously in giving women formally at least and relatively recently equal political rights. And yet it remains the fact that our own traditions of debate and public speaking, their conventions and their rules still lie very much in the shadow of the classical world. The modern techniques of rhetoric and persuasion formulated in the Renaissance were drawn explicitly from ancient speeches and handbooks. Our own terms of rhetorical analysis go back directly to Aristotle and Cicero. In fact, it's common to point out that um, Barack Obama or his speechwriters have learned all their best tricks from Cicero. And so far as the House of Commons is concerned, those 19th century gents who devised or enshrined most of our parliamentary rules and procedures, they were brought up on exactly those classical theories and slogans and prejudices that I've been quoting to you. Again, I'm not meaning we're simply the victim of the classical inheritance here, but those classical traditions have provided us with and continue to provide us with a template for thinking about public speech, for defining and deciding what counts as good oratory or bad, what counts as good persuasion or not, and whose speech has a right to be heard. And gender is obviously an important part of that mix. And it only takes a really casual glance at the modern Western traditions of speech-making and debate, at least up to the 20th century, to see many of those classical themes being replayed and re-emerging all over the place. Women who claim a public voice get treated as freakish androgynes, like Mycia defending herself in the forum. Now, the obvious case here is Elizabeth I's belligerent address to the troops at Tilbury in 1588 in the face of the Spanish Armada. Uh, here she is. Uh, where in those famous words that I certainly learned at school, uh, and I'm sure many of you did too, she seems positively to avow her own androgyny. And you remember it. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. It's a slogan that I discovered this week that you can still buy... Um, <laughs> emblazoned on gifts from baby grows to skateboards. Now, I have to say, why you'd want that on a baby grow rather beats me, but I tell you, you can get it. <laughs> let's, go, let's give the baby grow a miss. Um, the truth is, actually, I have to tell you, that good Queen Bess may never have said anything of the sort. There is absolutely no script from Elizabeth or from her speechwriter. There's no eyewitness account. And the canonical version that I was made to learn, I have to say, as I again was reflecting this week, I got a, a funny thing to make girl a girl's school learn, that speech, but I did. Um, that comes from a letter 
of a pretty unreliable commentator with a terrible axe to grind about 40 years after the speech was said to be delivered. But for my purpose, the likely fictionality of the words makes them even better, because the nice twist there is that the male letter writer puts the confession or the boast of androgyny into Elizabeth's own mouth. But looking at modern traditions of oratory more generally, we also find that main area of licence for women to talk publicly, that is, to support their own and women's interests, again, being very prominent. And I hope you don't spend as long as I've been spending flipping through those rather quaint compendia called A Hundred Great Speeches from History, um, because they're very odd. But if you do, what you will find, uh, when they come to get the women's speeches from history, which is always a bit of a challenge, um, uh, most of the female highlights from Emmeline Pankhurst to... Hillary Clinton talking at the UN conference on women in Beijing, very famously, are just of that type. They're talking always, or almost always, about the lot of women, not about the community as a whole. And so, too, is probably what's the most popularly and frequently anthologised example of female oratory of all, um, which is the 1851 Ain't I a Woman speech of Sojourner Truth, um, an ex-slave abolitionist and American campaigner for women's rights. And ain't I a woman, she's supposed to have said. I have borne 13 children and seen them most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? That's been very influential. Um, I should say, just in case you're wondering, uh, those words are only slightly less mythical than Elizabeth's at Tilbury. Um, That authorised version was written up about ten years after Sojourner Truth's speech, saying whatever she said. And it's in that second version, not by her at all, that what is now the famous refrain, Ain't I a Woman?, which Sojourner Truth certainly never said, was inserted. And, in fact, the, the whole speech was kind of retranslated uh, at that point into the southern drawl that I notably failed to uh, replicate um, to match the abolitionist message, even though Sojourner Truth came from the north and had been brought up speaking Dutch. <laughs> so we had to be careful with these things. Now, I'm not, of course, saying that women's voices raised in support of women's causes aren't important. You know, someone, for heaven's sake, has to speak up for women. um, And if men won't, well, women should. But it remains the case that women's public speech has for centuries been niched into that area. And here, of course, I've got to flag up before somebody else does my own topic this evening. No one forced me to talk about this, but I think it can hardly be a coincidence that I chose to talk about the public voice of women rather than about, say, migration or the war in Syria. 
Now, I don't want to put myself in the same league as Sojourner Truth, but I probably have to confess to being in that niche too. But even that area of licence has not always or even at all consistently been available to women. There are countless attempts, uh, there are countless examples of attempts to write women out of public discourse entirely, Telemachus style. But just to take one, anyone who's read Henry James's Bostonians, published in the 1880s, will remember that a central theme in that book is the silencing of Verena Tarrant, a young feminist campaigner and speaker. As she draws closer and closer to her suitor Basil Ransom, a man endowed, as James stresses, with a rich, deep voice, she finds herself increasingly unable to speak as she once did in public. Ransom effectively reprivatizes her voice insisting that she speak only to him. Keep your soothing words for me, he says. Now, in the novel, it's quite hard to pin James's own standpoint down, and certainly most readers don't warm to Basil. But in the essays, James makes it pretty clear where he stood, for he wrote about the polluting contagious and socially destructive effects of women's voices in words that could well have been written by some second century AD Roman and were probably in part derived from second century AD sources. Under American women's influence, he insisted, language risks becoming a generalised mumble or jumble, a tongueless slobber or snarl, or whine. It will sound like the moo of the cow, the bray of the ass, and the bark of the dog. I hope you spotted in that uh, kind of mad extreme stuff a faint glimpse of the tongueless philomela, the moo of Io, and the barking of the Roman female orator in the forum. Henry James was just one among many in what amounted at the time to something of a crusade for proper standards in American speech, other contemporaries praised the sweet domestic private singing of the female while opposing any use of the female voice in the wider world. And there's plenty of thundering about thin nasal tones of women's public speech, about their twangs, their whiffles, their snuffles, their whines and their whinnies. In the name of our homes, our children, our national honour, said James again in 1906, don't let us have women like that. Now, we don't talk quite in those bold terms now. Not quite. But it does seem to me that many aspects of that traditional package of views about the unsuitability of women for public speaking in general, a package which goes back more than two millennia, still underlies some of our own assumptions about and our awkwardness with the female voice in public. 
Take, for example, the language we still use to describe the sounds of women's speech, which is not all that far from Henry James or some pontificating Roman. In making a public case, in speaking out, what are women said to be? They're said to be strident, they whinge, and they whine. When after one particularly vile bout of internet comments on my own genitalia, I tweeted, rather pluckily, I thought, that he was all a bit gobsmacking. (laughs) This got reported by one commentator in a mainstream British magazine in these terms. The misogyny is truly gobsmacking. She whined. Since when has it been whining to say something was gobsmacking? Uh, This did induce in me a quick Google trawl to see um, who is said to whine in the world these days. And I can tell you, it's women closely followed by premiership football managers (laughs) on a losing streak. It's not only women. I felt so angry about that. I felt more angry about being said to be a whiner than I did about the misogyny in the first place, I think. You might say, well, do those words really matter? And the answer to that is, of course they matter. Because they underpin a contemporary idiom that acts to remove the authority, the force, even the wit or the humour or the irony from what women have to say. It's an idiom that effectively repositions women back into the domestic sphere. You know, think when people normally use the words whinge and whine. It's over things like the washing up and who hasn't put their socks in the laundry basket and things like that. It trivialises the words of women by making it into, turning it into a wine. Or in the terms I was using about Henry James, it reprivatizes women that way. Contrast, very easy, contrast the deep-voiced man with all the connotations of profundity that that simple word deep actually brings. Deep, he's deep and deep. And it's still the case I'd argue, that when, as listeners, we, and I think I'm including women in this, we hear a female voice, we much more rarely hear a voice that connotes authority. Or rather, and this is to put it, I think, more correctly, we haven't yet learned how to hear authority in a woman's voice. We don't hear, in Homeric terms, muthos, when we listen to a woman. Now, I'm talking just voice here, but it's very obvious that you could do appearance too. Um, You could say, um, look, in a man, uh, craggy and wrinkled faces signal mature wisdom. Um, In a woman, they signal a kind of past-my-use-by-date label, I think. We don't hear the voice of authority. We don't hear a voice of expertise either. At least not outside women's traditional spheres. To put it in another obvious way, for a female MP to be a minister of women or of education or of health is a very different thing from being Chancellor of the Exchequer, a post that no woman has yet filled. 
And across the board, we still tend to see a tremendous resistance to female encroachment onto traditional male discursive territory, whether that's the abuse that gets hurled at Jackie Oakley for having the nerve to leave the netball court to become the first woman commentator on Match of the Day, or what can get meted out and regularly is meted out to women who appear on Question Time, where the range of topics discussed is usually fairly mainstream male political. It may not be a surprise that the same commentator who accused me of whining claims to run a, quotes, small, light-hearted competition for guess what? The most stupid woman to appear on Question Time in a year. Now, I am extremely reluctant to stoop to the obvious point about the stupid men that appear on the panel. Much more interesting is another cultural connection that that reveals. That unpopular, controversial, or just plain different views, when voiced by a woman, tend to get taken as indications of her stupidity. It's not that you disagree, it's that she's stupid. Sorry, love, you just don't understand. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have been called, you know, online or by email, an ignorant moron. Now, hang on, I think, and sometimes say, you know, I might be wrong, you know, I might, I might not have got it right, we might disagree, but I'm self-confident enough to know that I'm not an ignorant moron. Right? Being wrong is different from being stupid. Now, these assumptions and these prejudices are, I think, very hardwired into us. I don't mean that they're hardwired into our brains. There's no neurological reason whatsoever for us to perceive low-pitched voices as more authoritative than high-pitched voices. But they're hardwired into our culture, our language, our way of talking about men and women, and into the millennia of our history. And when we're thinking about the underrepresentation of women in national politics, say, their relative muteness in the public sphere, I'm sure we have to think beyond what the Prime Minister and his chums got up to in the Bullingdon Club, beyond the bad behaviour and the blokish culture of Westminster, beyond even issues of family-friendly hours, childcare and women-only shortlists, important as those are. I think we need to be focusing on those even more fundamental issues of how we have learned to hear the contributions of women. Or, just to go back to the cartoon for a moment, um, I think we have to focus on what I'm going from now on to call the Miss Triggs question. Not just how does poor old Miss Triggs get a word in edgeways, though that's important enough, But how can we make ourselves more aware about the processes and prejudices that mean we don't hear her? Now, at this point, I am going to turn briefly to trolls, the internet, death threat and abuse, because some of these same issues of voice and gender 
are at play there too. Now, I think we have to be very, very careful about generalising too confidently about the nastier sides of the internet. These appear in many, many different forms. It's not quite the same on Twitter as it is under the line in comments in newspapers. And criminal death threats are a quite different kettle of fish from merely unpleasant sexual abuse. And many different people are targets, um, from grieving parents of dead teenagers through you know, professors of classics to celebrities of all sorts. What is clear about internet abuse is that many more men than women are the perpetrators of it, and they attack women far more than they attack men. Now, men are not immune from attack, but one academic study a few years ago put the ratio at something like 30 to 1 female to male targets. For what it's worth, and I have to say I've not suffered anything like as bad as some other women, um, I receive what I would euphemistically call something inappropriately hostile. Um, that's to say, you know, beyond fair comment, beyond even fair anger, just being cross, every time I speak on the radio or television, and I almost certainly will after this lecture is broadcast. It's driven, I'm sure, by many different things. Some of it's from kids acting up. Some of it's from people who've had too much to drink. Some of it's from people who've just for a moment lost that inner inhibitor and can often be very apologetic later. I think most of them are more sad than they are wicked. And when I'm feeling charitable, sometimes when I'm feeling charitable, I think quite a lot of it comes from people who feel rather let down by the false promises of democratisation blazoned by media such as Twitter. It was supposed to put us directly in touch with those in power. It was supposed to open up a new kind of democratic kind of conversation. Of course, it does absolutely nothing of the sort. You know, if we choose to tweet the Prime Minister or the Pope, they will no more read our tweet than they would read a letter if we sent it to them. And for the most part, the Prime Minister doesn't even write the tweets that appear under his name anyway. How could he? I have to say, I'm rather more optimistic that maybe the Pope does write some of his. I think he might not be so busy. <laughs> some of the abuse, I suspect, is actually a squeal of frustration at those false promises, taking aim at one of the traditional targets of our culture, the gobby woman. Um, and we have to remember, and I think it's important to stress at this point, um, women are not the only group in our culture who either are or feel themselves to be voiceless. But the more I've looked at the details of the threats and the insults that women are on the receiving end of, the more some of them, at least, seem to fit into the old pattern of prejudice and assumption that I've been talking about. For a start, it doesn't much matter what line you take in an argument as a woman 
if you venture into traditional male territory, the abuse comes anyway. It's not what you say that prompts it. It's the fact that you are saying it. And that matches the details of the threats themselves. Um, Okay, they include the predictable menu of rape, bombing, murder, uh, and so forth. Um, And if I signed now relatively insouciant about that, I can tell you late at night when you get one of those, you feel scared. Um, They have all that. But there's a significant subsection which homes in on the silencing of women. If you look at what these tweets are saying, uh, shut up you bitch, is a fairly common refrain. Or they will promise to remove your capacity to speak. Um, I'm going to cut off your head and rape it, was one tweet I got. Um, Headless female pig was the Twitter name chosen by someone threatening an American journalist. Or perhaps most diagnostic of all, you should have your tongue ripped out, as was tweeted to another journalist, which, of course, takes us back straight away, 2,000 years, to poor Philomela. In its crude, aggressive way, a lot of these tweets and other forms of online abuse are about keeping women or getting women out of man's talk. In a way, I think that the 140 characters of a tweet act as a sort of magnifying glass um, on attitudes that you find elsewhere. And in, and in some ways, I'm tempted to see that there is a kind of faint connection between these mad Twitter outbursts, and mad mostly is what they are, and the blokes in the House of Commons heckling women MPs so loud that you simply can't hear what they say. It's, um, told that in the Afghan parliament they have a rather clever strategy. They just unplug the women's mics when they don't want to hear them. Ironically, too, the well-meaning solution that's often recommended when women are on the receiving end of this turns out to bring about the very result that the abusers want, namely women's silence. What do you get told? Don't call the abusers out. Don't give them any attention. That's what they're looking for. You know, just say nothing and it will all go away. That's the advice you get. Now, I can tell you, if you think that women have put up and shut up far too long, it's very hard to follow that advice. It amounts, I think, to leaving the Twitter bullies in unchallenged occupation of the Twitter playground. And we have to speak out. Now, in a way, that's sort of the bare bones of my... It's not a diagnosis, it's my kind of historical long view. But to finish with, we ought to think a bit about what the remedy might be. It's all very well um, doing a bit of analysis, but what are we going to do about it? Uh, What is the remedy? Well, put in those terms like... Most women, I can say, I only wish I knew what to do about this. 
Um, there can't be, I think, a group of female friends or colleagues anywhere in this country, and probably not many places in the world, who haven't regularly discussed at least the day-to-day -day practical aspects of the Miss Triggs question, whether in the office or the committee room, the council chamber, the seminar, or the House of Commons. How do I get my point heard? How do I get it noticed? How do I feel, as a woman, I belong to that discussion that is going on? Now, I'm sure it's something that some men feel too. As I've already said, women aren't the only voiceless people on the planet. All the same, if there's one thing we know bonds women across all backgrounds, all political colours, in all kinds of businesses and professions in this country, it's the classic experience that almost all of us have shared of the failed intervention I'm sure that many women in the audience are instantly going to recognise what I'm talking about. You're at a meeting, you decide you're going to make a point, you find a place to put it in, then there's a silence. Short, isn't it? Short silence follows a few awkward seconds, and then some man picks up just where he left off and says, well, what I was saying was... <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And it feels as if you might never have opened your mouth and you end up both blaming yourself and the blokes whose exclusive club this discussion appears to be. Those who do manage successfully to get their voice across very often adopt some version of the androgyne route, like Mycia in the Forum or the mystical, mythical Elizabeth at Tilbury, consciously aping aspects of male rhetoric. That was basically Margaret Thatcher's line when she took training specifically to lower her voice, to add the tone of authority that her advisers thought her high pitch lacked. And that's fine, in a way, if it works. But it seems to me that all tactics of that type tend to leave women still feeling that they're on the outside, that they're impersonators of rhetorical roles that they don't quite own. You know, they're actors rather than orators. And putting it bluntly, it seems to me that having women just pretend to be men may be a quick fix for some, but it doesn't honestly get to the heart of the problem. <coughs> now, what I've been suggesting but various points in this lecture is that what we really need to do is to think much more fundamentally about the rules of our own rhetorical operations. Now, I don't mean by that, that sort of old standby of, oh, men and women talk different languages, don't they? To which I would always reply, well, if they do, it's because somebody taught them different languages. And I certainly don't mean to urge us down some kind of pop psychology route, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, um, so never mind about public speaking, my dear. My hunch is that if we're going to make any progress with the Miss Triggs question, we need to go back to some first principles about the nature of spoken authority, about what constitutes it, how we have learned to hear authoritative utterance where we have and how we recognise that. And rather than push 
generations of women into voice training classes, I think perhaps we should be thinking more about the fault lines and fractures that underlie dominant male discourse. It isn't necessarily women's fault here. And again, I think we can usefully look back to the Greeks and the Romans. But while it is true, as I've been insisting, that classical culture, I think, has to bear some, some part of the responsibility for our starkly gendered assumptions about public speech, about male mythos and female silence, it's also the case that some ancient writers were much more reflective than we ourselves are about those gendered assumptions. They were subversively aware of what was at stake in them. They were troubled about the simplicity, and they hinted at resistance. Ovid, for example, may have silenced his women in their transformation and mutilation, but he also suggested that communication could transcend the human voice, that women were not that easily shut up. Philomela lost her tongue, but she still managed to denounce her rapist by weaving the story of what had happened to her into a tapestry, which is why Shakespeare in Titus Andronicus has to remove not only the tongue of Lavinia, but also her hands, just in case she got anywhere near a loom. And the smartest male ancient, oh, they're all male, the smartest ancient rhetorical theorists acknowledged that the best masculine techniques of oratorical persuasion were uncomfortably close, as they saw it, to the techniques of female seduction. So was oratory really so safely masculine, they wondered. Maybe it was a female genre all along. And one particularly bloody anecdote, this is where we get to Neil's decapitation again, uh, vividly exposes the gender wars just below the surface of ancient public life and speaking. It's a story that comes from the conflicts at Rome that followed the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. In the course of these, Marcus Tullius Cicero, um, Rome's most powerful public speaker and debater ever, was lynched. And the hit squad that took him out triumphantly brought his head and his hands to Rome. And they pinned them up for all to see on the speaker's platform in the forum. So just where Cicero had claimed his greatest oratorical triumphs, there his head and his hands got stuck up dead. It was then, the story goes, that Fulvia, the wife of Mark Antony, who had been the victim of some of Cicero's most devastating polemics, went along to have a look. And when she saw the bits of him, she removed the pins from her hair and repeatedly stabbed them into the dead man's tongue. It's a disconcerting image of a defining article of female adornment, the hairpin, 
used as a violent weapon against the very site of the production of male speech in the male mouth. It's a kind of reverse philomela. This 19th century painting actually even more disconcertingly eroticizes the whole scene. In fact, gloating Fulvia actually seems to have taken Cicero's head home uh, to do her way with, uh, rather than it's supposed to be in the forum, you know, not in your bedroom, darling. Um, <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, what I'm pointing to here is a critically aware, self-aware, ancient tradition. And it's, it's not one that directly challenges the basic template I've been outlining, but it is one that seems to determine to reveal the conflicts and the paradoxes in the gendering of public speech, to raise bigger issues about the nature and purpose of communication, male and female. And I think, really, to close, we should perhaps take our cue from this and really make an effort to bring to the surface all those big questions that we tend to shelve in our pursuit of quick fixes and practical answers about how we speak in public, why we speak in public, what actually is debating for, and whose voice have we learnt fits. What we need, in other words, I think, is not just you know, practical measures, you know, not just saying, let's have a woman chair of every committee and everything will get better. What we need is some good, old-fashioned, feminist consciousness raising about what we mean by the voice of authority and how we have come to construct it. And I think we need to work on that before we can even start to figure out how we modern Penelopes might answer back to our own Telemachuses. Or, for that matter, I think we should start to work on that before we decide just to, well, lend Miss Triggs some hairpins <laughs> and see what happens. Thank you. give in to the temptation to use this as a platform for a speech. So if anybody would like to ask a question... Unless you're a woman. Hand up. So <laughs> gentleman over there with the spectacles, yes? You've just put your hand up. Don't put it down again. That's you. Yes? Are you going to give... Are you going to... Yes? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, sorry. I'm over here now. Which of you is going to ask the question? Gentlemen, the spectacles, please stand up and ask your question, or we'll 
thank you very much. That was uh, very interesting, and you make some incredibly valid and important points. Um, what I was wondering is sort of how do you see the position of a women's voice compared to other outsiders? I'm thinking mm-hmm. the ancient world. You've obviously got the slave populace. You've got Middle Ages, sort of the serf body. The colonial age, you've got colonial yeah. sort of citizens. And even now there's sort of ethnic and class yeah. issues yeah. where a lot of yeah. people are outside. Yeah. So how does yeah. that sort of fit? Yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, that's partly why I did make a, a, an effort to say, even now, you know, we're not just thinking of, of women uh, being excluded. And I, I, f- I feel actually quite certain that, you know, s- some of the stuff I get is from people who feel in all sorts of ways more excluded than I am. You know, there I am. You know, I might say things they don't like. I might be speaking, but I'm on question time. You know, and, you know, there I am, you know, Oxbridge professor, you know, everything must seem as hierarchically stacked as it has before. Um, what's interesting in the ancient world is the, um, the, the one area you'd compare it with um, is slavery. And in a sense, slaves, um, and partly in Rome, I think this is because slavery tended to be a a temporary rather than a permanent status, you find a quite um, consistent, uh, funny and discordant uh, sort of discursive tradition put in the mouths of slaves. You know, you know, I don't know how many people here remember, dating us all, um, Frankie Howard's up Pompeii um, with Lurkio. Well, Lurkio was absolutely, you know, Romans would have recognised that. You know, the, the clever slave um, who actually shares his thoughts with us um, uh, and always really trances the master. Now, the problem about this is that within the Roman literary tradition, you can show that time and time again. Um, one suspicion is it wouldn't have felt like that if one was a slave. You know? um, so there's a lot of Roman projection of uh, you know, a cleverly um, other voice uh, onto to slaves but not women. Though, you know, if you were going to say, you know, would I, you know, who really had more influence, you know, Fulvia or her slave, then actually probably Fulvia. So it's, there, there are different... Um, Blind spots, I think. But you're absolutely right. Another question? Um, the lady just there, yes, with your hand up. Sorry, just the gentleman about to leave behind. Yes, there. <laughs> I could make a comment about that. <laughs> um, yes, yes. I just wondered if there was any advice you would give a 20-year-old Mrs. Triggs about to enter the workplace on how she might subvert some of these norms that it seems that she might encounter? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very hard. And, I mean, I've got some negative advice, uh, which I was sort of hinting at. Which I, I don't think in the end, just listening to what the blokes do and pretending you're a man um, works, really. I think it, it ends up making you kind of feel yet more of an imposter than you were before, but actually one some, somehow aping somebody else's voice. Um, it, where people have, I think, are most successful, and to some extent I think I feel I've kind of just about shifted to this myself, and I've got no idea how I did it. When I was 
the university seminar is very similar to an office meeting or whatever. And I think I went through about 25 years in the seminar. Oh, and when I opened my mouth, A, it was always the, you know, there was an awful silence at the end and somehow I didn't seem to be in the, um, uh, in the discussion. And also, when I heard myself, I didn't think it was me that was talking, really. What has happened to me and the way I feel much more comfortable now about intervention is because when I say something and I hear it, I think that's me talking. And that has given me a confidence when those kind of um, embarrassing interventional problems happen, I now find myself saying, come on, guys, answer my question, not back to what you were just talking about. But what I find puzzling is I, I can't remember how that happened to me. I can't remember how I, in the end, felt able to do that. Um, you know, confidence in one's own achievements a bit, I suppose. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't knock, you know, we've got lots of kind of women's groups in Cambridge and talk, you know, talking about it helps. You know, I said this wasn't, wasn't going to be an hour-long complaint or moan, but I see quite a lot of space for... You know, moaning is quite therapeutic, <laughs> actually. Yeah, finding that other people... You know, finding that other people feel the same, you know, that does help a bit. Now, I'm, but I'm not sure... If I had the answer, if I really had an answer, I would tell you. Um, all I can do is see sort of vague shapes in the pond, really. But I say, no, you know, don't, don't feel guilty about um, getting together and saying, aren't those blokes pain? I used to call it, I can now say, because we're not going to have this on the... Um, uh, actually, it's not going to be broadcast. Um, we used to get together after seminars, and the one thing we used to say, God, the willy wavers. It's all willy waving. <laughs> and that really made me feel better, you know? Any willy wavers want to ask questions? <laughs> Uh, the <laughs> lady there in the middle, no, just behind you. So yes, yes, yes. Well, both of you. First, 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 you. Yes, and there's a microphone over here, right down in the middle. Yeah. It's on the way. This way. It's coming from both directions. The other thing that you can de- deconstruct their rhetoric. Ah, well, it was. We've got, we it don't was, want counterpoints. So we'll first of all have the lady in the turquoise. Can I just add one point to my last answer? <laughs> so can I get in here, please? Um, the other thing, they always used to say, these guys, after the seminars, they used to say, God, he made a really killer point. And eventually I got brave enough to say, I didn't think this was a battlefield. You know, I didn't think we were killing each other. And they looked absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> Firstly, the in the Tokwas video. I wonder a bit what you thought um, about the role of mothers here, because I was thinking that at one point for Telemachus, uh, Penelope would be telling him what to do for quite a while, possibly, quite a few years, or if not Penelope, then his nanny. Uh, and I, I'm just wondering what you think of the role of revenge. <laughs> I'd like to let Telemachus off 
with that. I, you know, I would like to, to uh, say, look, you know, finally, you know, he's escaped from, you know, from the nappies, you know, and he is going to become a man. And in, in some ways, that is the, posit- the positive message of the Odyssey. Is that what Telemachus is doing? You know, you know, he starts off frightful little wimp, you know, and in that, you know, in the Penelope episode telling her to shut up, that really is his first kind of um, conflict, you know, with mum. And it, the positive way of putting it was saying, well, that's what every child has to do when they grow up. They have in the end to tell their mums to go upstairs, you know. Um, but also... Uh, you know, the other side of that is that, you know, the only way of, of thinking about being male in the ancient world was actually to make that command. Um, and so it's two sides of the same coin, um, I think. You know? Do our daughters do that? Perhaps they do. Yes, okay, they do. <laughs> I was just going to ask, um, what would you say about the role of religion in this? Because goddesses in the ancient world seem to have a bit more equality with the gods than just average men, but then, I don't know, like, the Bible doesn't really continue yeah. that female empowerment uh, theme. I think that's very interesting, and, and I, think the, I think the one trap one has to avoid falling into is thinking that female goddesses are somehow the analogue of mortal women. Um... And I think the clearest place you see that is Athena. You know, it's very easy to say, wow, you know, you know, all this misogyny in the ancient world, but, you know, they've got a female goddess of wisdom. Isn't that, you know, that showing some kind of recognition of female power, female voice, etc. And then you say, just look at Athena. She's not a woman, you know, you know virgin um, born of the head, she didn't have a mother, born of the head of her dad. And, you know, she's, you look at her, we, we're very used to looking at images of Athena and we think, oh, yes, she has a, um, she's got a helmet and a breastplate on, you know, she looks kind of warrior. And we just think, well, you know, goddesses look a bit odd. They look, they look like that in the ancient world. You know, the, the image we have of Athena is about a sh- culturally shocking uh, in antiquity, as us seeing pictures of child soldiers, you know, aged about six, with Kalashnikovs. Um, so th- these goddesses, they're certainly debating gender with their realm of divine beings, but I think that's rather different from saying there's a sort of way that they're recognising a female voice. They're recognising that very odd kind of voice that all divine creatures have. And they're all very odd. Not like us. You couldn't want to be Athena. Um, in, in George Orwell's um, Road to Wigan Pier, um, he described a 1930s um, mining uh, community and the women there would not let the men, even if they were unemployed, do women's jobs around the house in case they became, in his words, Mary Ann's, or in their words, Mary Ann's. So do you think that a lot of the conflicts that you're described in in your excellent lecture are a result of the fact that in the past, women's, uh, the the workplace required physical skills, which by and large men had more of. But today's workplace, um, women are 
equally competent to survive in it or better equipped to survive in it than men. And what we're at now is like the tipping point, and that's why it's so bitter. But 40, 50 years down the line, you know, the new status quo will be established. Well, let's hope. I mean, you know, my worry is that um, you've got two models here. You've got um, the progressive model. You know, in 50 years, it'll all be different versus... Actually, we've got, you know, versus the glass ceiling model, that, that there isn't, that we're not moving on. Um, I mean, I think in all sorts of ways, there's, there's quite a lot in, in what you say. Um, and I would put it rather more optimistically, in a sense, or, you know, I, maybe you, you were meaning it optimistically. I mean, when I said, look, it's, you know, it's only, a, it's less than 100 years since some women had the vote in national elections. So, you know, when, you know, I can play this, you know, I can play it as um, rather despondent, or I can also say, look, you know, the amount of change in the last century, you know, you know it's, right that, it's right that, you know, we are still impatient, because that's how more change happens. You know, and if, if, you know, if we all sat back congratulating ourselves, saying, well, goodness me, you know, haven't we done well, we wouldn't get that extra push. But, you know, I think back just to when you know when I was an undergraduate at my university there were 12% women um, and now there's 50% women and that's in 35 years um, and the nature of the workplace has changed uh, I think there's still some problems about the nature of women's engagement with the workplace I mean I can't tell you how many times at the end of a meeting that it's me and the secretaries who clear the tea away you know now, partly I'm complicit in that. You know, I, I am complicit, um, and we all are. But it's but it's a, a, there's a you know, the, the practicalities of gender change are very complicated. Do you think it's because um, now change is exponential? Change is now exponential in terms of the technology and the way things can be done in the workplace, um, whereas we're still stuck with our Stone Age genes where you had, no, you know, no. physical men and women cooking. No I'm, uh, no, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to say it's nothing to do with our sodding genes. It's about how we've been brought up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mary, you talked a lot about, uh, I guess, women being shut up and closed down. I want, what you didn't talk about, which I, I personally have sort of experienced, is, is this idea really that women just talk too much. They prattle yes. on. Yes. They go on and on and on. Yes. And then a man is silent throughout the meeting and then at the end sort of comes in and speaks with gravitas and yes. briefly sums, sums up. it up. So I wondered what you thought yeah. about that. Yes. I think it's, it's very interesting. And in, I have been, you know, I've been doing some basic research for this just so I didn't, you know, really get things very wrong. And what... What is clear to me is that, that what studies show is that in terms of day-to-day non-formal discourse, it is true that women tend to speak more than men. What uh, the most revealing studies are those done of formal meetings. When, uh, first of all, they tape the meetings, record the meetings, and then they ask all the participants... um, how much time they thought the different genders occupied of the speech. And men certainly, and I think women too, consistently overestimate 
how much time women have been speaking for. Actually, um, women do not dominate meetings, although if you ask the participants to record their guess of how much they spoke, they always overestimate it. So we have a kind of cultural vision that, you know, oh, they're always going on, you know, gossips, you know, they're prattling on, prating, you know, and it's all a bit meaningless, you know, it's empty. Um, and then, you know, the gravitas. Now, actually, if you, if you record it and do the counting, those men with gravitas are dominating the show, actually. Uh, we have time for two more quick questions. So, lady here. Yes, with your hand up. Just here. Yes. The microphone's on its way. Um, I was struck with the frequency with which she used the verb to tweet, especially after talking about how Ovid turned his women into cows they moved. And I was just wondering if you could reflect on the relationship in between the little blue bird tweeting and the identity on the internet and the internet as a forum for discussion. I think it's... Um, I think this, we're still working that out, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I just began to broach that when I said that, it, that we felt that it was... Um, uh, democratized. We've been led to believe that somehow this was going to be a huge democratic conversation, and I don't think that at all. And I find, you know, I tweet all the time. You know, I, I quite like it. I learn things. I've made friends. You know, I've been, you know, pretty horribly abused. But the profit loss account is definitely profit, as far as I'm concerned. And even if it wasn't, I'd bloody well stick in there because I'm not jolly well going to be frightened off by those blokes. Um, but there are bits of it that are a bit. I mean, I find anonymity quite difficult. You know, I'm, I find, you know. Conversations between Mary Beard, because that's what I am on Twitter, you know, and somebody calls themselves Scary Cornflake, you know, a little bit, um, you know, n- there's a bit of disequilibrium, you know. You know, how do you have a conversation with someone called Scary Cornflake? Um, and there are things like that. And, I mean, this is why I suppose I'm going to agree with the gentleman here, actually. I think we're, we're still learning the rules or, and the conventions of Twitter. Um, uh, I don't do some other, you know, I don't do Facebook and things like that, so I don't really know how it works there. Um, but, you know, n- none of us were brought up to know what a rude tweet was. You know, I was brought up writing, you know, just trying to decide whether you should put yours sincerely or yours faithfully at the end of a letter. No one even taught me how to do an email. Um, you know, I still don't know whether to put dear or whether I just put hi, you know. Um, and, and with Twitter, it's even further... And, you know, it's even newer, and that's why I think, in some ways, we've got to stick in there. And you know, to actually, you know, to, to feel that you have the confidence when somebody tweets something about you that is you think is offensive, to say, "Please take that down." And fifty percent of the time, they will. I mean, you know, people aren't. You know, most people aren't particularly nasty. They look at what you've they've written and they think, "God, you know, that's terrible." Um, trouble is, twenty <laughs> percent of them are only in, prompted to do more uh, when you say that. But it's you know we've just got to you know look. I, I mean, what's one's hope? One's hope is that um, the rules of face-to-face conversation will somehow be internalised as the rules of online conversation. I.e., you don't say about someone on Twitter or anything that you wouldn't say when you met them.
You know, and that you know, it seems pretty good. I, you know, I, I cannot say that I have always abided by that. There cannot be a person who does Twitter unless they're, you know, really saint-like, who hasn't tweeted something that probably better off not tweeting, you know? But as long as you can say, whoops, sorry, then I think we'll be all right. One last question. Yes, right I know you've um, talked about Twitter a lot, and I actually follow you on Twitter. I love your tweets. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know if you're on Facebook, and there's something that's um, going around from one of the feminism pages that's, I need feminism because. And it's these boards and pictures yeah, that I've seen uh, I've seen I need some. feminism, and people have written various reasons on. Now, a lot of the reasons that come up are because I can't talk about rape or because I can't mention that I was sexually abused. And there's a, a huge... You know, it's not necessarily a modern thing, but a huge thing about talking about rape and about shameful, and it it largely comes down to to misogyny and because it's a control vice over women. I just wondered on your opinion versus, obviously, in the classical era, it was commonplace, almost to be expected um, as a woman, versus now. And there's obviously been a drastic improvement. Do you see that continuing as the voice of women improves? Yes, I mean, I think that um, I, as a classicist, um, you know, you read Ovid, you read the Metamorphoses, and you're, you, when you're first taught it, you sort of gloss over the fact that this is a story of a series of violent attacks on women. Really, um, and people, you know, there were. I used to read things when I was an undergraduate, which said. Well, when we say rape, I don't really mean rape, you know. It means kind of snatching, you know. And you know, the, when, you know, I really sort of thought a, a breath of fresh air in classical studies is when a woman I'm now friendly with wrote an article and said, Ovid's Metamorphoses, you know, uh, 25 rapes a book. <laughs> it wasn't not quite that. And there was a... For me, the beginning of talking about that in relation to the classical world, instead of always being euphemistic, you know, the rape of the Sabines, they were just carried off, you know. No, they weren't, Ori, they were raped. Um, And, you know, I think that I haven't seen all of this, I I need feminism, I've seen a a bit of the stuff that's come through on Twitter uh, about it. And I, you know, I think you can get an awful long way by speaking out about things. And it's when you feel that you can't speak out, um, whether that's publicly or to your friends or, you know, or to your women's friend or whatever, that's when you've got a trouble. And I think a lot of this stuff, when you, know, you can move away from rape, you can go to Laura Bates' Everyday Sexism site and say, look, actually, just say that what this guy in the bus has just said to me is not on, you know, and I think that does begin to change things, you know, and so I think, you know, we need, you know, what happens in the law, I think this is all terribly difficult, because actually I think what's most important is that you feel you can say, this won't do. That's so wonderful. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.